0: Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and today's episode is going to be connected to the current sermon series that we are going through on Sunday mornings at the Vine. We're currently going through a series on the life and the, the stories and the family of Jacob, and there's just so much material in that in that section that we couldn't possibly get to all of it on Sunday mornings. And so this is going to kind of be a supplement to that, if you will, and will feature a couple of different conversations. Uh, the first conversation that, that you'll hear coming up next is a conversation I was able to have with Rachel about Genesis 28, which is the chapter that we, we looked at this past Sunday. If you're, at least if you're listening to this the week that it comes out, it's the, the chapter that we looked at this past Sunday. It's the chapter of Jacob's dream and what we know of is kind of Jacob's ladder or Jacob's staircase and Rachel and I kind of had different perspectives and different insights on that chapter as we, as we read it and so we're going to kind of talk about both of those and I think it it shows just the way that we can gain insight and and deepen our understanding of of scripture by by listening to others and reading it in community and and learning from what others see in the text. And so we're going to just jump right in there. If we don't really do any background work or setting up of Genesis 28. So if you want some of that, you can, of course, just kind of skim over the chapters leading up to that chapter, or you can go and, and watch the, the sermon as part of the worship service on our YouTube channel, if you haven't had a chance to, to do that yet. And then as part of that conversation, we end up talking a little bit about Isaac, and so after that conversation, Terry joins me for a conversation more specifically about Isaac and, and some things that we can, can take from his story and some rabbinical teachings. We look at some rabbinical teachings and, and thoughts about Isaac and his life and, and his legacy. And there's, there's some interesting stuff there. I think there's some stuff that humanizes Isaac that, again, kind of deepens our, our understanding of of Scripture, and I think helps us to explore it in a little bit of a different way. And it's it's a conversation that I think we both found interesting, and, and hope that others do as well. So we hope that you gain something from this episode. That it it causes you to to explore and to uh, to maybe and hopefully find some some insights from these stories that will. That will be impactful and and meaningful to you in some way and so here first up is the conversation between rachel and i on genesis 28.
1: when jacob has this encounter with god he has a really interesting reaction so he's seen these angels going up and down on the ladder to heaven and he basically gets proof from god that god is at work and that god is in that place And what Jacob says is really funny, but accurate. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So for some reason, Jacob didn't know that God worked in that place. But what kind of bothers me about it is that it seems like Jacob is a little bit oblivious to his whole family story, his whole line of faith heritage that he's had. Jacob is the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. And when Isaac sends Jacob to go look for a wife, he specifically tells him, may the blessing of Abraham be upon you. And it seems like up to this point, Jacob doesn't know what his whole family has been through. And the part that irks me towards the end, (laughs) and um, I just read this and was maybe too critical of Jacob, but he says, um, So Jacob makes a vow and he says, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob basically makes this super conditional vow to God saying that, if you will keep me, if you will give me protection, if you will provide everything that I need to eat, and if I have new clothes that are good, and you will make my whole mission successful, my whole journey, until I get safely back to my father's house and nothing bad happens to me, then the Lord will be my God. I don't know if this is Jacob's conversion moment, or like when he's thinking about it, he's kind of Uh, being open to God finally, and saying, if all of this happens, then you will be my God. But to me, it's like, why does it have to be so conditional? Why does Jacob have to have food and bread and protection in order for God to be his God? Shouldn't God already be his God? Shouldn't he know by now that God has done miracles and made promises and been faithful and been good on his promises? To abraham and to isaac and i wonder why jacob seems so oblivious to his family's faith story and it seems like he's trying to create this relationship with god and this covenant with god from scratch and yet he has one of the most amazing foundations of a relationship with god that anyone could have that god had intervened specifically into his grandfather's life and made this covenant and promised to keep it. And he has. And the covenant is going to be fulfilled through Jacob. And yet, it's like he doesn't know. Um, and he says, only if you do all of this will you be my God. And I just feel like he's missing out on so much. And making his life a lot harder. By not knowing the faith story of his parents. Or if he knew, not remembering or not taking it to heart for some reason. Because he only wants God to be his God if he meets him in this personal way and does all of that. And I just feel like what God had done through his father and his grandfather should have already been enough for Jacob to know that God exists and to know that he is at work and to know that he is with him, but it seems like God allows it. (laughs) Uh, And God uh, does provide for Jacob and he does keep him safe, even though his life was in danger from his brother and all of that craziness. God does uh, provide what Jacob has asked. And so in a way, it's almost like Jacob's conversion moment of I will follow you. Um, I just wish that he had known the faith story of his family and had built upon that instead of making it, you have to prove yourself to me, God, and I'm almost testing you that you have to show, show this to me, that you are real and working in my life personally, not just in the lives of my parents. So to me, it just speaks to the importance of knowing the faith story of your family, like seeking out the heritage of your family, because a lot of us, do have a heritage of faith in our families, our parents and our grandparents or maybe others in our families that could tell real testimonies, true stories of what God has done in their lives, of miracles that God has done, of marriages that God has saved, of a financial breakthrough when it was needed, of healing. And we don't tap into that a whole lot of the time I think sometimes we're afraid to talk to our families about what they've been through, how God has worked. and I think that this story is a maybe a teaching to us that it's important to know the history of how God has worked in our families, and that it's worth it to take that time to ask your parents, what did God do? Um, What has your relationship with God looked like and what stories do I need to know so that in my relationship with God, I'm not just starting from scratch, but I already have this history and this foundation of who God is and how he works in our families. And I wish that we would do that more. And I want to do that more because I feel like our families have so many amazing stories to tell us. And that if we would just take the time to learn them and to ask about it, it would make our own relationship with God stronger. And we wouldn't need God to prove himself to us so much because he already has. He already has through our families. And for those of us who have messy family backgrounds, maybe it's not really a story of faith, but a story of lack of faith. I think it's important to ask about those too and to ask, how did you miss The blessings of God, or maybe what mistakes did you make? Um, And to just let our parents and our grandparents or other family members tell about their walk, um, and it might be a lack of a walk with God, but even hearing about that too can be a warning and instructional to us on how not to make those same mistakes so that we can be the ones to break the cycle of divorce or to break the heritage of alcoholism or abuse in our families. Um, So that was just kind of something that jumped out to me when I read this story of Jacob's encounter with God at Bethel and seeing the angels going up and down on the ladder. He learns that God is in that place And he didn't know it before (laughs) Um, and makes this conditional covenant with God that I feel like if he had taken to heart his faith story and how God had worked in his family, he would have had a much stronger foundation to build upon and wouldn't have needed God to prove himself to him. But God would have already been his God by this time.
0: You know, this is this is I think one of the, the reasons that I think it's so good to talk about Scripture in community and with other people, because so when I read this chapter, I did not I did not have that reading at all, really. Um, but I think it's a great it's a great way to read this chapter. And I think it's a great um, treatment or reading of of kind of Jacob's response in this chapter that I think is is certainly there. It's just not how I, it's not how I read it. And so I'm, I I think it's, that's the benefit of being able to, to come at scripture from different perspectives and, and, um, and to, to talk about and study scripture in relationship and community. So I'll just kind of start there. And so I'll get to kind of the way that I read it in a minute, but I think you know a couple of things that, that what you were saying made me think of. First of all, like I said, I hadn't I hadn't really read that into this in this chapter, but I had been thinking about and I, I even have in my notes a phrase that you said about breaking the cycle. That that was I had that in my notes for for a week I think a week or two after this, but that that we do see these cyclical mistakes in the lineage of Abraham that people keep making. And it's like, yeah, at some point someone has to break the cycle of that. Um and, and we tend to pass down our hurt and our brokenness. And and at some point what has to happen is someone has to to deal with that and to to heal from it so that they don't pass it on. And I think we see a lot of of passed down hurt over the line of of Abraham's lineage and family. The other thought that I had is that, you know, so this is just me thinking first responses to what you're saying. So, okay, so just go go with me here for a minute. <laughs> I think you could sort of kind of take your, your reading of this almost as, as maybe the failures of Isaac too. Because even if you think over the course of Genesis, like, we've got all these amazing stories about what Abraham did. We've got all these amazing stories about Jacob. We've got all these amazing stories about Joseph. We have almost nothing about Isaac as far as like what he did. I mean, he repeats the the mistakes of his dad. (laughs) Um, And that's kind of it. And then he blesses his sons.
1: Yeah. And even there's, that there's, blessing is super messy. So right, it's a like ev- why everything's you only kind, kind of have messy. One? Why can you only have one? <laughs>
0: yeah, and there's just there's there's really not a lot there. And and I've really started to see, I think even in just the reading that I've done for this series on Jacob, I think a lot of what it has caused me to to do is kind of think about Isaac in some different ways. And we 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 hear this repeated phrase, right? Like of the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet you can easily do a full sermon series on Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Like you could do multiple weeks on each of those. You'd be pretty hard pressed, I feel like, to do one on Isaac, unless you're going to talk about all the other people around him, like the things that happen in his youth or before his birth or at the end of his life. <laughs> um, I don't know. And so I've, I've really started to kind of see, like to me, I think you can make a case that Isaac is this really kind of you know, maybe Isaac is just this conflicted kind of person who is struggling with a lot of this in his own right. Um and certainly I think you could make a case didn't have the best relationship with with Jacob, maybe, at least seems to be certainly closer to Esau. And so what is what does that produce within the the relationship between uh, between Jacob and, and Isaac? I don't know. So I've sort of started to see Isaac in a little bit different way. And I think you could maybe say that, like maybe this is part of the, the failings of Isaac and not, not faithfully telling the stories as he should. Um, Or, you know, I think I even shared with you at one point, so one of the books that I've been reading for this series uh, is a, is the story of Jacob in novel form. And, and, and one of the chapters in that book is Isaac telling Jacob the story from Isaac's perspective of Abraham almost sacrificing him on the idol. I mean, on the uh, altar. Yeah, on the altar. And, and you know, I think there are, there are many ways that we can tell that story in redemptive ways, but at some point it's still a kid on an altar with his dad holding a knife above him. And, and I don't think it's hard to see, especially based on what we now know about trauma and, and kind of ways that we carry those things forward. Like, man, is that an experience that Isaac just ever, isn't ever really fully able to, to get over? Um, And so I know that's, you know, for some people, that's a little bit reading into it and things like that. But it is interesting. It has become interesting to me that there's just not a lot that we know about Isaac. Um, And... And perhaps you can see that then in what happens with his sons.
1: Yeah. And there's even that element of relational competition um, for Isaac because he was the second born when it's like it was God's plan for Isaac to be the first born. But his parents did this whole scheme. And so now he is the second born behind Ishmael. Right. And so there's just a lot of messiness and conflict because of that, too. And so maybe Isaac struggled with identity. Like, am I really the one to carry God's promise down the line? Because there's this other brother who was before me. Um, So, yeah, I think that there's... Maybe you could do a sermon series on Isaac. <laughs> um, but You it could, would, but it
0: would be a lot of filling in gaps. It
1: would require <laughs> imaginative reading and just kind of considering yeah. what are the possibilities because the narrative doesn't spell it all out for us.
0: Yes, and so I think for that, that's why I love podcasts, because I think it makes good material (laughs) for podcasts, and is material that I'm much more comfortable bringing up in a podcast than I would be preaching it. Yeah. Um, Because I think it's a way of humanizing the story, that when you start thinking about Isaac just as a person, it's like, yeah, I can completely see how he would have some issues parenting twins who are already sort of given to competitive nature, like, yeah, I can see where that would cause problems. And even when thinking about Rebecca, about his wife, right? Like there's, there's deception across her whole family. Like her brother is Laban, who is very, <laughs> we're going to find out is very deceptive. Uh, she, Like really, like we, all we have of her really is deception, right? With, with she's the one who goes to Jacob and it's like, Hey, we should do this. So you get the, you get the blessing, um, she's not really portrayed in the best of lights in in the story. And no one from her family really is. And she kind of passes that <laughs> down to Jacob, it seems like. Um, and then him and Laban go back and forth with deception between each of them. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's just, it's a messy family. Mm. And just a lot of messiness.
1: <laughs> so, to my point of, like, knowing your family's faith story, is it hard to, like, talk about that? to like ask your parents or your grandparents about their faith stories if you know there's some messiness along the way. <laughs> mm. Um and is it still worth it? Like is are those good conversations to have and is there potential for healing um for your family members to talk about their history and their past and how they knew God or failed to know him until a certain point like Jacob.
0: Good question. <laughs> I think the answer would be yes, but but yeah. You know, and I I think certainly as someone who has multi generations of, of sort of Christian belief in my family, I I can see the benefits of, like, I feel like I was sort of handed, you know, the faith of, of of my parents and and grandparents, and and at some point you you've, you've got to make that your own faith, but I think it it gave me a good foundation to build off of and to to explore on my own for sure. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and maybe I was too critical of Jacob. Maybe that is what he's doing in this story is this is the moment where he's starting to make it his own. Um and starting to say you will be my god, like not the god of my parents. I know you're the god of Abraham and Isaac. But then you will be my God. And that is what happens. So God becomes Jacob's God. And then from then on, he's referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. And so I think it's significant. Jacob had to agree and be in that covenant and say, yes, you are my God too. Not just the God of my parents, but mine too. But I just think that if we know what God has done in our parents' lives, that at least gives us a head start. Like we don't have to start from ground zero of knowing God. There are so many stories that could inspire faith in us.
0: Yeah, very true. And so to go to, so you started with, so I said I'd come back to kind of the way that I read it. You you started by reading the, referencing the verse where Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And so that was really, I think what I keyed in on in going through this chapter and this idea that and i think you see this a lot throughout scripture in the old testament but at this at this time it seems like from what we know about these people and this this kind of time in the world and all those things that people had sort of a very territorial view of of gods and i mean monotheism was not the the primary mode of operation for people in this day it was a very polytheistic you know environment and you had a god who was a god of these people and a god of these people over here and so gods were very much tied to land and people. And, and so it seems to make sense for, to me then that as, as Jacob leaves his kind of people and his home and is in a new place now, and now he has an experience with God in this new place, that Jacob seems kind of surprised by that. Like, oh, the, the God who was the God back at home is still active here in this unfamiliar place. And so when his response then that, that you referenced that you kind of read as conditional, which I think is certainly there, um, and after you brought it out, I certainly see that, I sort of read that as, okay, well well, then if, if God is going to keep going with me forward from here into new places, into this country that I'm not familiar with, then then that's going to sort of mean something to me and, and is going to show me something about God that that I didn't that I wasn't aware of before, that I didn't know before. And it's sort of this kind of revelatory moment for for Jacob. And and I think again it's sort of like the the application of that what it makes me think of is that like we don't necessarily have that same theology so to speak, but I do think we all have places where we are sort of more able to experience or feel the presence of God. And that maybe I've got this place where I can connect with God and I feel God in this spot in my house or in the worship center at church or when I'm sitting at the beach or in the mountains. Or we all have those those places, right, where it's like, man, I just feel really connected to or God. Camps here. or
1: retreats. You yeah, like really camps, retreats. God, and you're like, right. Oh, is God still gonna be with me when I go to school on Monday? <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I think those places are good, and it's good for us to have those places, those places that refuel us and recharge us and are regenerative, but but it's also important to remember, yeah, that the the God who we experience there is the God who I experience or who goes with me when I go into the difficult places, when I go into the places where it's harder for me to see, and where I go, whatever that looks like for people um, in, in difficult relationships or at work or at school or in, in times of... Um, where I feel like he 's distant, like the the God who we meet in in those familiar places goes with us into those places as well and and so, like I said, I think you see that throughout throughout the Old Testament, especially, and so I, I sort of kind of preached on that a couple of years ago at this point on a back to school Sunday where we talked about naaman and so naaman 's got so I won't go through the whole story of Naaman, but basically he's got leprosy. Someone tells him, hey, you should go see this prophet Elijah in this other country, this other god. And uh, So he goes, and Elijah tells him to dip in the river seven times. He doesn't want to do that. It's a dirty river. Uh, he's like, we got better rivers back home. I'm not going to do that. So they go back and forth. Finally, he does it. Uh, one of his servants basically, or servants or somebody in his army or somebody basically says, hey, if, if he told you to do something great, you would have done it. He just told you to go into a river, which is... We could do a lot of stuff just on that, but it's away from the point for today. Um, So, um, but anyway, so after it works, he ends up doing it. He goes down, dips in the river. um, And then he, after he realizes that it works, he goes back, he goes back to Elijah And he stands before him and says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, And so it's very locational. It's like, uh, this is where God is. And so I realize that now. And so he says, please accept a gift from from your servant. So Elijah's like, no, I'm not going to accept a gift. And then he says, okay, if you will not, please let me... Uh, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. And so he wants to he wants to worship God, he wants to make sacrifices to God, to Yahweh, the God that's in Israel. But in his mind, like in order to do that, he has to take some of this dirt from Israel to take it back home, so that God will be present there. And, and I think one of the things that's great about, um, about Elijah's response, then, um, Elisha, I've been saying Elijah, it's Elisha. Um, about Elisha's response is that he seemingly lets him do that. And, and so it's like, you know, this may kind of run counter to what I was saying earlier, but Elisha could have said, know that like the God who is at work here is at where you don't need this dirt. They kind of let him take it. Um, and so I think sometimes, you know, we may need those things. We may need those reminders that, yeah, the God that I met in this place is with me in this place too. Um, and, and that, that can be a faith forming thing as well. But it's just this, it's this other reminder that repeatedly throughout scripture, we've, we've got these, these kind of people realizing, Oh, this isn't a territorial thing. Mm-hmm. This is this is the God of who is everywhere and in everything.
1: I think that this is a theme that runs throughout all of the Old Testament and New Testament too, of people realizing and God graciously revealing himself as the God who is everywhere. <laughs> so I think of Jonah who says, I can run away from God if I just get on the ship because I don't want to do what he's telling me to do. And... Right god allows him to get on the ship but he also brings a storm to show i'm still out here in the middle of the ocean um and so there's run away from me (laughs) there's this process of jonah surrendering to the idea of god is everywhere god is still here too and i can't run away from him and even when he goes to the ninevites and he is like "Ugh, they repented Uh, God, you're still here Ugh, among this like horrible people. God is still there and still forgives and works among horrible people who are repentant. Um, so I just see this theme of, it's actually pointing to me to the grace of God that he allows us to go through these experiences of mistakes and failures and trying to run away from God or taking the dirt from Israel or whatever to teach us, over time that he is everywhere, that he is the omnipresent God. Um, and it's not like he's trying to, like, it. I just see the kindness of God in that too. And even with Abraham, that he called him up out of the land where he was and said, I will be with you and I will give you a new homeland. And so that's part of the struggle for me in reading Jacob's story because I feel like if he knew that call of God on his grandfather to leave his homeland, that he would be with him and take him into a new land. And all all the stuff that happened in Egypt and all of that just feel like he would have already known that God is everywhere. (laughs) Um, That This is not a territorial God, like the fake gods of the other lands because it was only in that place that people knew them. But this God wanted to be known everywhere. So in his grace, he chooses this particular people and a nation to know his name. So he becomes their God first. And then through that nation, he becomes known, he becomes famous throughout all the world. And he is the God of the universe that he made. Um, So it's just kind of amazing to me. I think it points to the sovereignty of God too, that like this was his plan to choose one people that would know him, and he's their God first through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then it spreads out to all the nations.
0: Yeah, that's good. A good, good way to sort of pull, pull the whole conversation together. So that's probably a good place for us to stop. Thank you, Rachel.
1: Yeah, thanks.
0: Okay, so now I'm here with Terry. Welcome, Terry. Good morning, Warren. Thank you for, for spending some time with us today. So Rachel and I just had a conversation about Genesis 28, very specifically about that chapter uh, as kind of a complement to this, the sermon from Sunday. And so Terry and I had kind of begun a conversation about Isaac specifically the other day. And so we're going to kind of pick that up now because I think there's there's a lot more to think about and, and talk about with Isaac. And, and so I think over the time of this series, just kind of thinking about and, and reading about Jacob and other things connected to this series, Isaac has really been someone who has uh, really sort of stood out to me and who I've sort of even gained more interest in throughout this series, even though we don't really know a lot about him and but that that leaves us some space to fill in some gaps and so we're just going to talk about Isaac a little bit today, some about his life and story, what we know about him, and then maybe some t- some things that we can take from that and learn from that and and kind of take away from his story. What do you kind of see in Isaac's story or what is of interest to you about Isaac himself?
2: Yeah, I'm probably like you, Warren, or maybe others that I think of Isaac only in connection often with Isaac and Abraham, that connection, or Isaac and Jacob, uh, or perhaps Jacob and Esau in that connection, there yet to actually look at isaac as an individual man in the bible you know one of the three patriarchs um i did some i I reread the scriptures pertaining to isaac in preparation for this because literally you know it was like okay what can i say about isaac and again everything seems to be connected with either abraham or jacob and i don't think about him as like really one of the big three patriarchs out there. But I, uh, like you, I've come to appreciate him more. um, And there were some things that I was able to flesh out. Uh, I did something that I've started trying to do more often, which is to follow some of the Jewish rabbinical traditions of Midrash, where you essentially build on things that others have said, but also, and Warren, you do this really well in your sermons, and I've tried to do this in some of my lessons that I teach on the Old Testament, is you look at timelines, you look at what's going on in the background, things that may have influenced the story that are not necessarily on the surface. You have to dig deeper to to pull out that human element of maybe what was influencing decisions being made, and it gives you a greater appreciation, and it makes the story come to life, at least for me. So when I did that with Isaac's timeline, even just looking at when was he born, when did he die, what happened during that timeline, some things came out that rabbinic tradition speak about, which had never been brought up in Sunday school classes that i attended so maybe that will come up during the conversation but again i uh, i'll just end right there by just saying that i do appreciate isaac much more after actually unpacking his story and looking at him as an individual one of the three patriarchs
0: i i agree and i think i, I think there's great benefit in doing that and some of it I think maybe serves to just help humanize people in scripture a little bit and and some of it is um we might say speculative in some ways but but it also just helps I think then it also helps us see things in scripture that we might not otherwise see and so uh, again so in in part of that you know you mentioned timeline I think one of the things that I really hadn't sort of paid much attention to even though it's right there clearly in scripture is that you know Isaac so when when Isaac gives his blessing to Jacob and Esau he thinks he's near death and he lives a long time after that like he stays alive quite a bit after that and all of Jacob's 12 sons have been born by the time Isaac dies if you follow the timeline of of scripture which is I mean quite a ways in the future, and so you've got this guy who thinks he's close to death and now he ends up living for much longer after that um, outlives jacob's wife um rachel even and and so so you know that 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 in and of itself is interesting and 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 maybe telling that he thinks he's near death and then lives for quite a while after that um, and and still, as you said there's There's relatively little that we know about Isaac in and of himself that's not connected, as you said, to other people kind of in his story, even though he lives to be 180 years old. Um, And and I think what you find is that uh, in some ways because of that. Because there's sort of not a lot that Isaac does on his own, there's some rabbinical teaching that kind of comes from that. And, and so maybe we've, we've found some similar sort of takeaways and teachings. And so we'll see, we'll see what thoughts we have come away with that, that were similar and maybe what, what was different. Uh, but to kind of get us going in that direction, I guess there, there are a lot of teachings about Isaac and Jewish thought that I just didn't know about. Um, and so some of that is just kind of interesting and some of it I, I think is stuff that we could take away from it. So for instance, I'll just sort of get us going on some of these and maybe some of these are ones that you found similar, uh, thoughts about. We'll see where we, where we found similar thoughts and where we found different ones. Um, one thing that I hadn't really ever thought about, but that apparently is a thought in Jewish kind of teachings, is that uh, Isaac is the first person born Jewish, which makes sense. Um, but, and you could kind of make it, you know, Ishmael is born of, of Abraham, but goes and kind of has his own lineage. And so so there's a thought that, you know, while Abraham is the first kind of Jewish person, uh, that Isaac is the first one born Jewish, which is, is interesting, at least to me. Um, tradition also says that, that Isaac is is almost identical in appearance to Abraham.
2: Is this something that you found? No, I didn't, but I found so many patterns in Isaac's life that pattern directly from Abraham. I mean, I think he really mimicked his father. So if his appearance wasn't necessarily like him, at least his behavior in many ways was like him, though he was in some not ways. as... Yes, and though he was not as robust, he was not, I don't think he was as, as diverse of a personality. I mean, you see Abraham not only being this faithful spiritual leader of his family, but he was a warrior. I mean, he was not afraid to go toe to toe and go back and capture, recapture a lot. I mean, he takes essentially soldiers in and, and conquers these neighboring kings you don't see Isaac doing anything like that. Isaac was not somebody that was necessarily going to go toe to toe with the enemy. Uh, you see this shield of protection around Isaac, yeah, um, and in him, you know, pulling off some of the same crazy stunts that Abraham did about, you know, his wife being his sister. But uh, <laughs> but again, I had I had not run into the uh, that he actually looked like Abraham, so.
0: Yeah, there, there are similar patterns in their life, but their personalities seem to be very different. And I'll come back to that at the end. Um, but yeah, similar patterns. One of those patterns, as you said, is, is Abraham and Isaac both kind of try to pass their wives off as their sisters for fear of what will happen to them, both with Abimelech. And so, so there's this thought in some rabbinical teaching that, that one of the explanations for Isaac's birth was that he's actually Abimelech's son um, and I'd never heard this before, but that, um, that, you know, Abraham and Isaac, I mean, Abraham and Sarah had been unable to have, you know, children, of course, for many, many years. And so then after they leave, there's a thought that, well, maybe he's, he's Abimelech's son. And so that as part of, of kind of dispelling that rumor, God kind of, forms Isaac to be the spitting image of of Abraham so that there's no question this is Abraham's son. And whether it's Abimelech or someone else, uh, there's there's that thought that because it took so long for, for for Sarah to get pregnant, that to make to make Abraham or to make Isaac be almost identical to Abraham would have sort of confirmed that this is Abraham's son. This isn't someone else's son. Uh, this is Abraham. So there wasn't any question about, you know, whose son this was. And there's even a point in, in one of kind of where, where Abraham's lineage is listed, where it's listed repetitively twice that Abraham is the father of Isaac. And so there's this thought that it's repetitive in order to drive home this point, that this is Abraham's son, it's not anybody else's, <laughs> and and that their their physical appearance being so uh, resembling each other so much sort of is seen to kind of drive home that point. And there's a deeper kind of spiritual element to that that I want to finish with. So we'll come back and and finish with that. Another thought that I'd never heard before was that the sacrificing of Isaac is actually brought about by Isaac himself to an extent. Is this something you came across?
2: No, I, I did not come across that. You dug a lot deeper. All right, so we...
0: We came across different stuff. That's good. Yeah. So, there's, so this is an interesting rabbinical thought that I think does lead to something that, that I do think you can bring out of the text. Because this would be obviously something that's completely extra. from the This is extra tradition that's not in the text at all. Um, but there's a story among kind of rabbinical thought that, um, that Ishmael is bragging to Isaac that, hey, I got circumcised at 13 years old. You got circumcised at eight days old. In other words, like I had to. This is something I had a part in. I had to stand there and take it, and knew the pain that was coming, and I did it. You didn't know any of it, so so it sort of is, is kind of this toughness thing of hey, I'm tougher than you. I'm more committed to you because I had to do this at 13, where you did it at eight days old. And so the story goes that Isaac says, well, oh yeah, if if I were commanded this very day to give my whole life to God, I would do it without hesitation. I would just say, yes, God, take my life. That's how dedicated I am. And so then the story goes that God basically says, okay, then prove it. (laughs) Here, here's what you can do, which is certainly a different take on that whole story. Uh, But kind of connected to that, and, and this is something we've kind of talked about before, connected to that, there's this idea that not only is Isaac not a young child when this happens, but that he's actually an adult, and maybe even one, like one article that I read, put him at 37 years old, which if you follow the timeline would sort of, fo- would fit with the timeline of what happens after that with um, with Rachel and when he gets married and, and uh, I mean, with Rebecca, not Rachel. I get all the R names mess, messed up. <laughs> but with Rebecca, when he gets married, it, it follows the timeline of that. But to think of him as a 37-year-old man going through that, is a very different image than i think sort of some of the images we we see sometimes of isaac as as a young boy. and so that's where i think there's some rabbinical thought there that in some ways is very sort of outside of what we read in scripture and would just be we might say speculative or like you said in in a lot of midrash thought there's 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 kind of some filling in of the gaps um that that we don't have but but then the other side of that, this idea that, hey, Isaac is is probably a lot older than we would typically think, I do think fits with the timeline of what we read in Scripture, even though it's very different than maybe the image that we would have in our head.
2: Yeah, I, I did come across that thought. Uh, we know that, and this is in the Scripture, um, you don't have to dig very hard looking at ages, that when Sarah, Isaac's mom, dies, he's 37 years old, just based on how old Sarah lives to be and, uh, and so forth. And so he's 37. Uh, we know that he was old enough, one, he was old enough to have this conversation with Abraham about, you know, where's the sacrificial animal? And he was big enough to carry all of the wood on his back. Uh, the text says that um and so again the midrash that i came across was that this uh, this occurred shortly before sarah's death or around the time of her death and that it may, just the trauma of that may have triggered uh her demise um again and so he would have been 37 years old you find that perhaps maybe like jacob isaac was very much somebody that you know loved his mother and grieved his mother's loss you find that when he oh you know three years later so he's 40 when he marries rebecca and that you know very quickly and, and this was probably more jewish tradition he takes rebecca into his mother's tent uh so she's been dead for three years now um according to scripture. And it said that he, his, the grief over his mother was in some ways alleviated by having this new woman in his life. Uh, I don't know if that's comforting to your new wife to say, oh, I've now replaced my mother with you. <laughs> You've taken the place of my mom. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but you do get this sense that he, he really grieved the loss of his mom. And, uh, and, and again, that he was married three years after his mother's death. Now, whether he... Actually, the sacrifice scene occurred shortly before that time or not. It's, you know, that's purely speculative. But it, I think it, it does seem like he's at least an older teen. Um, clearly somebody that could have put up a scuffle had he wanted to. Uh, if he did not want to be bound. Um, right. You know, so there was submission on his part to some extent so there was faith and submission on his part regardless of his age um and ultimate faith in his father um there that again i think it points to the character of isaac now you and i have spoken about this what did that ultimately do to his relationship to his dad and how did he see that whole event uh did he see it as really just testing abraham's faith or did he see it as, Dad, you you really were going to do this, you really care so little for me, or I am nothing to you that you would be willing to do this? Uh, and you know what does it say about his God that would even ask this of his dad, even though you know we know the end of the story, um, but that's got to be fairly traumatic, um, I would think, uh, the way I would view that in today's culture. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so I think we could, and that's sort of what we kind of got into with uh, or how we kind of started talking about Isaac in, in the discussion. Rachel and I had is that, yeah, what is what does that experience do to Jacob? And you could certainly, I don't think it's difficult to see how that would lead to a complicated relationship that he would have going forward, both with his dad, Abraham, and with his God, um, that that even if it brings some level of intimacy and closeness that it would it would perhaps also lead to complications <laughs> which i think you can see even you know in jacob's life that jacob is someone who c- continually seems to be wrestling with god spiritually which we we see embodied in this very uh, literal story of him wrestling with God, which we'll get to later on in the series. And I think we could—I don't think it takes much imagination to see Isaac as someone who who is wrestling with his faith as well, um, especially considering he's the one bound bound up there on the altar. And so, uh, so, so kind of t- taking that and going from there. I, I did, I did find several interesting things just kind of about how Isaac is thought of and sort of the character of Isaac and the faith of Isaac in Jewish thought. And so one of those things would be, I think, maybe connected to that idea of maybe potentially, you know, again, it could lead to some complications. It could lead to kind of this, this kind of very committed um, sort of bonding experience as well, if you think about it, especially if we kind of divorce ourselves from a modern way of thinking about life and dedication and commitment and all those things and kind of put yourself in that time frame. I think we could see how it would be this sort of fortifying and faith-building moment as, as well, uh, again, especially in their context. And to that extent, there's a couple of times in Genesis where God is referred to as the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, um, that that's how it's, it's translated in English. Now, some will say that that word fear could actually be translated also as kinsman, which again would completely change how you read that. Um, but even if you hear it as the fear of Isaac, there's a thought of of again how that event could have shaped his perception of God going forward, and maybe fear there is meant to be read as as sort of an intimacy, and and that 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 God is very that, that Jacob has very much a reverence for God and and has an intimate sort of connection with God, which is sort of how he's thought about in some rabbinical thought, which is where I'll close out in a minute. Um, but, but yeah, you can hear just even different possibilities just in that, in that label of that, that he is kind of known as the fear of, of Isaac. Um, and so as you kind of, as you said, as you, as you've kind of re-explored and gone back and looked over Isaac's story, what do you find or what stands out to you as perhaps things, lessons we could take from sort of the, the character Or the person of Isaac. What do you see as kind of the character of Isaac in the stories that we have?
2: Yeah, I think at first I approached this, and Isaac seemed to be one of those characters where things were either done to him or for him, but he did not necessarily take the uh, impetus himself. And I, but as I reread his story, I see a shift in who Isaac is and his faith with God. You know, I think no doubt like most children, even young adults, you know, you reach a point where your parents' faith that they've instilled in you, in the stories they've told and, and their relationship with God, you have to take ownership of and it has to become your own genuine faith. And at least in the story as I was reading it, it, it appears like that that may have happened during the famine when he and Rebecca uh, go to the to the coastal area where the Philistines are, where Abimelech is. God specifically says, "Don't go into Egypt." Uh, you know, go to that western Negev area, the Gerar, where Abimelech is, and God. Blesses him over and over, and he becomes so prosperous that you know it actually creates problems there because they have water rights issues and every time he digs a well or opens a well that maybe Abraham had dug it's it produces water um and then that just creates another point of contention among the other herdsmen in that area, and it eventually he has to move to another area just to at the will of Abimelech, who says, you know, you're, you're too numerous, too powerful, um, and he does that. And then at that point, uh, and I forget exactly which well, it's, it's. I think it's when he's in Beersheba, it says, he begins to call on the name of the Lord, or he calls on the name of the Lord there. Um, And you see that in Old Testament kind of language as being the point where their faith becomes real and that that relationship with God becomes the overriding factor in what they do, what they think. Um, And so I think he experiences God's faithfulness in his own life, how God blessed him. In fact, the blessings were so clear that even Abimelech came up and said, it is clear that God is blessing you. And in fact, we don't want you to come back and hurt us in any way, or, you know, that may be the thought being, if God will do all of this for you, we don't want to be the people that get you upset because your God may actually bring a curse on us. Uh, You know, this thought of blessings and cursings is woven into this story as well. And so it is obvious, even to those around him, that your God is blessing you mightily, in everything you do. And I think that faithfulness in Isaac's life, he recognizes that and it says he calls on the name of the Lord. Again, I take that to mean not in some, you know, liturgy form, but literally God becomes, you know, his his uh, the, the his the one that directs his life, that orchestrates his life, he shapes everything around what does what does Yahweh want? Uh, And so that's one of the things that I took from just rereading the story is, I think his faith became a genuine faith. And that's also when he, I think he understands that the power of the patriarchal blessing, you know, what you say matters uh, and that God will bless that blessing. I, as a human will bless you and I have no power to make anything happen other than to give you stuff, but it's ultimately what I say will have power because I am God's instrument uh, in this land. And you see that he understands that he will be the seed through which Abraham's blessing um, is transmitted. You know, he's bound to have heard those stories over and over again about how God promised his dad all of this stuff, all of these things you know, including, you know, becoming a nation, becoming very populated to take possession of the land. Because you see Isaac at some point, when it's clear to him that Jacob is going to be that person uh, of the two boys, he, he essentially bestows that blessing on Jacob. That was not the first blessing. That was not the blessing Jacob stole. That was the blessing that Isaac clearly gave Jacob, knowing that, okay, it looks like you're going to be the child of promise. And so I am bestowing that blessing, the one that was given to Abraham, the one that was given to me, I am giving that to you, Jacob, uh, and you'll be the fulfillment of Abraham's promise uh from God.
0: Yeah, and you know, I think in in those those stories that you are referencing about the wells, which are in, in Genesis twenty six, I think there we we find not only, I think potentially some differences between Isaac and Abraham, but I think you also see there embodied some of how Isaac is really sort of held in, in Jewish thought now. Uh, so, for instance, as you kind of mentioned earlier, uh, when 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 Lot is taken to into captivity, Abraham's response is very much a military type, you know, kind of response. He goes in, uses force, gets Lot out. And that was kind of, Abraham is very much sort of a go-getter. He's a mover. He's a shaker. Um, and he's going to use kind of whatever means necessary. Sometimes that's diplomatic. Sometimes it's military force. Um, and that's kind of how he goes about things. But, but there's never any, like when, when, when the people come and, and destroy basically the work that Isaac is doing there with the wells, it says he just gets up and moves to another well. Um, like there's never any, it seems like from the story, there's never any responsive force on Isaac's part. Um, he's just seems to be a person of, of sort of peace and restraint, which is how he has kind of come to be known in a lot of Jewish thought and teachings. And so again, this is one of the things that I kind of read that I didn't know about really all three of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. There's this, this thought that sort of there's there's a piece of the character from each of those men that is kind of uh, seen and, and and sort of um, that is carried down through the Jewish traditions that you want to kind of be embodying as a Jewish person. And I think this would hold true for, for Christians uh, as well, something good to kind of see that there's a thought that sort of it is Abraham's kind of love and uh there's kind of the idea that the love and the expansiveness to an extent of, of Abraham is carried down, that for Jacob, it's ironically the truth. Jacob is known sort of as truth and Jewish thought, which is interesting, that he's originally known as someone deceptive. Um, but that with Isaac, with Isaac, it is his awe and his reverence for God and his self-discipline and really this reverence and awe that leads to his self-discipline as a person that is sort of seen as the character of Isaac and what he passes down sort of through the the Jewish tradition and line and and I think that's interesting and I think you certainly see that in his you can see that in the stories that he does come across as someone who ends up developing this awe and this reverence for God and that that leads to him being this person of self-discipline and restraint and peace, which is how he's kind of seen in a lot of Jewish teachings. And And while Abraham, as we've said, was very sort of intrepid and, and adventurous, Isaac doesn't seem to to have that. And yet in their differences, they are both fulfilling the purpose that God has for them. And they both have a role to play in, in what ends up being carried out. And, and so there's this quote that I found from a, a rabbinical teacher. I don't, I it from a Jewish kind of teacher. I don't know if this person would consider them. They, they were passing on teachings of other rabbis. I think I'm safe, safe to say that. Uh, and so I found this quote that I think is, is, it kind of speaks to all that and is said very well. Uh, this person said, Abraham's true and only heir was Isaac. And although Isaac's emotional character was different, even opposite from his father's, both were committed to the dedication of their respective traits, to the service of their creator and purpose, rather than the fulfillment of their own particular drives. Indeed, it is only through Isaac that Abraham could develop into Jacob the perfect synthesis of love and awe, expansiveness and restraint passion, and commitment. As children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we too have it in our power to unite our diverse characters and drives to their common intrinsic end. And so I like that idea of, of kind of seeing them as these two very different people. And while the patterns of their life are in many ways similar, their, 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 char- their, their emotional character, their personality is very different. And yet they're both working towards this common goal and, and purpose. And I think that's a great picture of, of Christian life and a great reminder for us as, as people who are called to be a united body and community, that there is space for all of our different giftedness and strengths and, and talents uh, and personalities to, to come together well and for a divine purpose when we're all sort of moving in the same direction. Um, and I think you see that in the New Testament with you know, it's basically one person who who kind of spearheads this effort to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It's Paul. That seems to be kind of, Paul has a gift for that, a personality for it, and he's the one doing it and spearheading all of it. And And, and you see all these different kind of uh, gifts and, and and traits being used by God for a common purpose and goal. And I just think that's a great picture of sort of church and Christian life.
2: Yeah, no, I I think that is a good application for us. And even though, Isaac didn't do some of the things that his father did or that his son Jacob did. Uh, you know they, they uh, even though Isaac moved around a little bit, he really appears to have stayed in Canaan the entire time. He really never ventured outside of Canaan. yeah um, interestingly, yeah, his name never got changed either, so <laughs> yeah, name never got changed and and you know he never he's not even the one who
0: leaves to go find him a wife back home. Uh, Jacob very famously goes back, uh, but Isaac doesn't. Abraham sends a servant, um, and so yeah, the whole time he's just kind of there. Which is one thought. This is going to take us back a little bit, but I meant to mention this earlier, and so I, I, I didn't. But um, interestingly, another thing I had never kind of realized that is in there in the text, going back to to Sarah's death. I I never realized that there is no record of Abraham or or Isaac, seeing Sarah again after they leave to go sacrifice Isaac. Um, And so again, a common thought in Jewish thought is that's the last time they see Sarah. And as you kind of referenced, perhaps it's the news of of what happens there that sort of is too much for Sarah to bear, because it says after that, that Abraham's servants go back home, but Abraham didn't. Um, And then when we meet Isaac later he's come back home because he goes to live in the Negev after that apparently and so you can certainly see that as just this this event that even if it leads to redemption at some point in that moment seems to be it, it causes something within them <laughs> um and and it seems to be the last it seems to be that they don't see Sarah after that which is just I'd never really seen or noticed that before and um so I didn't mean to break our thought, but I did want to mention that 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 was another one of those pieces that I had never really kind of seen or noticed before.
2: Yeah, and um, uh, to go off kind of how death in this family tree may have impacted the family story, I, I ran across another rabbinical teaching, which is uh, again when you in the in the scripture, it's clear that. Um, Isaac is married, he has Jacob and Esau, they've already been born, and then Abraham dies after that. Um, and so if you just follow the timeline, Jacob and Esau, who are twins, are 15 years old when Abraham dies. And we know Isaac goes back and attends the funeral. And also Ishmael is there. It says both Isaac and Ishmael uh, you know, bury their father. And I would think, you know, for one, just in in most normal families, your kids are going to see their grandparents at at some point. So I don't know what connection Jacob and Esau had with Abraham. I, you know, in the back of my mind, I would have thought that they would have visited some, uh, but even if they had not, or if it had been very limited, I would have thought that they would at least go to this funeral, that he would have taken his son's to see their grandfather buried, this great man of faith buried. And rabbinic teaching states that, so one is, you know, they spent, they 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 meet Ishmael. If they've not, have never met Ishmael before, they meet Ishmael, you know, their dad's half-brother, uh, which later comes up because you find out that when Esau finds out that My parents really hate the fact that I married these Hittite women. He's like, well, how can I get in good with my parents? You know, Esau wanting to please his dad. It's like, I'll go marry one of uh, Ishmael's daughters. Uh, And so they may have made this connection then at the funeral. I don't know. Uh, But the rabbinic teaching is that it was shortly after the funeral service that is when uh, Jacob basically... Uh, coerces the birthright out of Esau. That's when that event occurs, when they're 15 years old, and it hits Jacob what the power of a birthright is and what the impact of that could be in his life if he had that birthright. Um, But again, there's nothing in Scripture that tells you how old they are when that whole red stew, lentil stew episode occurs. Uh, But it does also add, I think it flavors... These are teenage boys and, you know, they're impulsive and they're doing some things that they don't mainly, especially Esau doesn't fully grasp the full long-term meaning behind, which uh, that seems to be one of his character flaws is he doesn't tend to be that forward-thinking, big, broad-thinking person. He's in the moment at the time. Uh, But anyway, that was another one of those rabbinic teachings about this, that episode between Jacob and Esau may have occurred shortly after the death of Abraham, making the boys 15 years old at the time.
0: Well, I know these sort of uh, rabbinic looks at, at some of these stories are interesting to us. Hopefully they're interesting to some other people as well. Uh, but I do think, I think it helps us to humanize what we read in Scripture and and to remember that these are these are people in people's lives and... And when we, you know, think about the emotion that goes into all this stuff and the other stories, I mean, as I said, we've got relatively little about the 180 years of Isaac's life. And so, you know, obviously it's foolish to think we've got everything from from Isaac's life. And obviously we don't have all the thoughts and uh, episodes and, uh, everything that that went on with him, and so I just think uh these these are these are good i think exercises for us to kind of humanize some of these stories and 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 find maybe some some hidden things in there that w- that we might have missed otherwise
2: one other quick point since you brought out how old he was when he died, and then you 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 mentioned the fact that when he bestows a blessing. Uh, he's nowhere close to being 180 you know in fact it when ju- rabbinic teaching essentially looks at uh, the end of genesis and they kind of calculate backwards using joseph not jacob but joseph's age and calculate backwards how old everybody was and when all this occurred uh, have have come up with an age that he was 130 years old when he uh, is going to bless Esau, and Jacob steals that blessing, uh, which means that he's a blind man living another fifty years in that culture. So, the, you know, here is this older blind man who's fairly frail and feeble. It sounds like who had lives another fifty years, uh, which probably did reduce what he could do. <laughs> you know, they're they're probably. He's not going to go on any big, long adventures yeah. at this point in his life. Yeah. And so, you know, for 50 years, he's probably just taken care of by his servants, by Rebecca. And, uh, you know, and so that, that's that got to impact, you know, what he can do as a person uh, there. But anyway, I it, it changed my thoughts about Isaac to think that he spent 50 years as this older blind man, that really was more frail and and not like Abraham, who seemed to be a go-getter up until he, you know, died. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just another way it fits in with the
0: pictures that we have of both of them. Um, I think in many ways, you know, some and some directly, even some of the stuff I read, really kind of connected Abraham as more of an extrovert and Isaac as more of an introvert which made me appreciate Isaac even, even more and feel a connection to Isaac. <laughs> um, but, you know, one interesting, another interesting thing I read about his blindness, again, in some kind of Midrash-type thought, there's a thought that uh, that Isaac becomes blind so that he doesn't have to see the foolishness of Esau, <laughs> which is interesting. <laughs> like, God's sparing him, kind of having to see. Because uh, I think, as you said, like, he marries someone, uh, and I think it says... She she became a source of great grief for Isaac and Rebecca, and so there's just a lot of Esau's life that that yeah he's 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 impetuous he's he's impulsive, um, he doesn't always seem to make the best choices, and so there's a thought that that God just spares Isaac from having to see all that by making him blind.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you know, bringing up just one last final thought uh, before we wrap up is you also see just as a husband that Isaac. Is the only of the pa- only one of the patriarchs who was faithful to one wife. Yeah, you know, you you don't have any indication that he was ever with another woman, that that he loved Rebecca, and that that's his only wife. Uh, even his father Abraham, who had had Hagar, uh, after Sarah dies, has another wife uh, and has lots of kids through her, uh, and so Isaac's got all these step, you know, brothers and sisters from his dad through this next marriage, that we don't hear a lot about that relationship either. And so there's these unusual dynamics that don't get brought up in the story, but you do just as the faithfulness of Isaac, not only to his God, but to his wife. Uh, It was a much simpler, less complicated relationship, it sounds like, between Isaac and Rebekah, although she was a little bit of a schemer, it sounds like, but just a, a better relationship between the two of them than you see of like Jacob and Leah or right. uh, you know Abraham. And even though he was very faithful to Sarah, you have the whole Hagar incidents, and then he remarries after her death. So. Right, and that probably serves as a good transition
0: because we'll get to Leah and Rachel next this coming Sunday in, in our series. But yeah, you even see with... On either side of Isaac, with with uh, his son, Jacob, and and Rachel, uh, Rachel kind of gets impatient and says, well, why don't you just have a son with my servant? Isaac's dad does the same thing. Uh, Isaac's dad and mom, you know, on the other side of Isaac, they do the same thing. They get impatient. But Isaac and, and Rebecca are also not able to have children. And we don't have, as you said, they seem to just wait. Um, they don't take matters into their own hands as... As the people on either side of them do in the lineage, which I think again speaks to what you're speaking of their their faithfulness to each other and to kind of the plan. They they it's not stated, but there is an unstated I think in that trust that they have. That uh, again I think speaks to these character traits that that have sort of lived on amongst Isaac in, in Jewish thought that he was someone of restraint and self discipline and. And uh, it ended up that yeah, God God ends up um, blessing them with these these twins, and that's where we've kind of picked up in the series. Um, and so I'll close with this thought that because uh, I mentioned bringing back the idea of of, of Isaac's uh, appearance resembling that of Abraham, and I, I mentioned there there was a spiritual element to it that. Um, is, is connected to this idea that I've already mentioned. So, just kind of to, I just, I left that loose thread out there. So, I just wanted to close it up by mentioning that again that even though they seem very different personality wise, everything else. Uh, they're pursuing the same purpose. And so the thought is that their resemblance is not only related to their outward appearance, but that it's reflective of their faithfulness. It's reflective of their inward commitment and determination and dedication that they have to God. And so this outward resemblance is, is sort of not only seen as something to confirm Abraham's um. Fathership is fathership a word <laughs> Fathership of Isaac, but it also speaks to this resemblance that they have in terms of drive and purpose and and dedication so I, I I thought that was interesting and and that's uh that'll be where I leave off today any any closing thoughts you have for us Terry
2: no i I think it is helpful that you know if you see uh, the adventures of Abraham and just you know his character as you said he was kind of a man's man many times of you know he would take the bull by the horns as they say and if lots in trouble i'm just going to round up an army we're going to go get him uh, and then you see jacob's i'll paint it in the best term possible his cleverness you know his ability to take a situation and turn it for good for himself and to use god's blessings in a productive way. Uh, and then you see the life of Isaac, who, again, seems to be more a little bit more passive in these situations, perhaps, as you said, more introverted. Um, all of them fulfilled God's purpose in their life. And I think that maybe is our calling, is to understand what are our gifts, what are our temperaments, what blessings has God put in our lives, and how can I be the most faithful uh, using those blessings to meet God's purpose and, you know, to try to see the picture to understand that, okay, I don't need to go become this other hero that I have in my mind, in my faith. I don't need to look like this person to fulfill my purpose uh, in God's calling in my life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Good thought. That's a good thought for us to close with. And, you know, we we started this saying we didn't know much about Isaac. And so... (laughs) Here we are 45 minutes later having <laughs> talked a lot about Isaac. And I know that you have a, a sort of a great love and appreciation for Old Testament and the the stories that we find there and and I do as well and I think this is just one of those examples of how much we could how much depth and richness we can find in those stories that that I do think gives us great great insight that that you just kind of closed us out with. So,
2: thank you Terry for spending this time with us today. I appreciate it. Oh, I enjoyed it. Always, always fun to explore scripture and gain new freshness and richness. And again, I think that's the beauty of scripture is if you really read scriptures with intent, uh, they should never get old or boring. You know, there's always more that you can draw from God's holy word. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Warren. Bye-bye.